Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is a show we do every year, but when it comes time to do it, invariably, we can't remember how we did it the year before, and we can't decide what our overarching strategy should be this year. But the basic idea is we're going to get a lot of panelists from The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable, 10 panelists in this case, and have them talk at night, which they don't usually do, about the year in culture. I'm not exactly sure what else is going to happen, but these are very smart, interesting people who have grown fond of one another over the years, I think. So at the very minimum, we're all going to have a very nice visit and maybe figure out something or more than one thing about what really did happen in culture in 2022. All right, let me set the scene for you. I don't know when you're listening to this, but it's, right now it's 9 o'clock on the Wednesday night in between Christmas and New Year's. And, and let me even set the scene for you more and, and explain the implications of that. So this is a six-story building that houses multiple kinds of communication companies and stuff like that. There are two cars in the parking lot right now. <laughs> Mine and Jonathan McPants, who is producing and technical producing uh, this show. It's uh, the year-end episode of The Nose, where we try to sort of figure out what went on in culture. Uh, and I think it's more complicated than ever with each passing year. It feels more complicated than ever right now. And let me just also say one more thing about this before. Well, actually, first of all, let me tell you that we have nine. We still have nine, right? It's <laughs> an ever-changing number here. I believe we have nine of our Nose panelists here. Uh, and they're not here, they're on Zoom. Otherwise, we'd have 11 cars in the parking lot. Um, and uh, we are going, they're going to kind of be trading places and stuff like that as we go along. Uh, and uh, we're going to try to sort of use themes to get us through each of these segments. But I sort of feel like the first theme, which is going to be addressed by Raquel Benedict, who is uh, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction, the host of the Right Good podcast, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D. Denisha Dugan is with us, associate producer at or professor at Octopus Theatricals. Uh, Rich Holland is a principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. And his goal now is to bring Harry and Meghan here. I didn't see that coming. but um, So here's how confusing I find this moment. So one of the things that was sent around as we were kind of getting ready for this, uh, uh, Jonathan McPants sent us uh, a little uh, clip or actually the entirety of an episode of The Big Picture, which is an, a Ringer podcast about movies, had four people on it, and they were going through their five top movies of the year. And by the end of the podcast, what happened was two of them, and these are very sophisticated people. I mean, I listen to a lot of their shows. They're very smart. They go to screenings in L.A. They see all the movies. Um, at the end of the podcast, it turned out two of them thought the best movie of the year was Top Gun Maverick. One of them thought the best movie of the year was Tar, which he had seen three times. And the third time, he said he realized how funny it was. Tar is not funny, all right? There's just like no possibility that that's true. I, I've only seen it once, but I'm pretty confident it's not funny. Uh, and 
Tars is airless, joyless thing, and Kate Blanchett's going to win an Oscar, and then we'll never watch it again. Uh, and then the other one was After Sun, which, like, you know, nobody has seen except people who go to screenings in L.A. And, and I was just sort of thinking, that's how confusing this is. You've got an art movie like Tar. You've got an even artier art movie and more obscure like After Sun. And then you get two people who think Top Gun Maverick was the best movie of the year. And they are older than 12 years old. So that's how confusing everything is. And I sort of feel like, in a way, we are more spread out than we've ever been before. And I'm going to sort of ask all three of the first segment panelists to talk a little bit about this. I don't know. Tanisha, are you identifying with anything that I say? Or is this, in a way, the way it always has been, that we kind of pretend that there's consensus about stuff, but everybody just goes off and does whatever they want? I mean, listen, the last time I was on the nose, I was reminiscing on shopping at a mall. So I think (laughs) that I am uh, definitely one who's thinking back to the 90s, I guess, and thinking of of a collective culture of of things that we all shared because there were only certain pathways to get to it. Um, You know, I I hadn't heard about After Sun, although according to my uh, cachet, I've watched it, which is interesting. (laughs) See, that's the kind of year it's been. You've watched a movie that you've never heard of. That's that's that I just literally don't remember because either the algorithm said watch it and it played while I was sleeping or or who knows. But I, I do miss the time when we sort of calendar watched things together that that i i was a wasn't a fan of the new sort of weekly releases on streaming platforms but now i actually long for it because it gave us all the thing to wait for together to consume together and to talk about afterwards so i'm missing the the the, the times when we could we could agree to disagree loudly about about different aspects of culture. Yeah, we're just going to disagree loudly about how confused we are now instead. That's our new option. And so, well, and, did you see that? Did you see that? Oh, no, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. No, <laughs> I saw that, but I don't remember it. Uh, so, and Raquel, you know, I mean, in a way, the the life, the path that you've chosen for yourself, not that I know you, you know, well enough to even be saying this, but in a way, you know, if you work in speculative fiction, you write speculative fiction, you're interested in things that maybe aren't necessarily mainstream, although increasingly they are. In a way, maybe I'm describing for you normalcy, that there's just a lot of stuff going on that not everybody can even agree to watch or read or care about. I mean, it's tricky because my my niche interests tend to be weird, low-budget horror movies. So if you want to talk about Top Gun, I can't. If you want to talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 5, I'm your girl. I'm ready. But uh, probably not a thing you want to talk about tonight. I mean, on, on the one hand, the the death of the monoculture is a little a little saddening because it's hard to find something that everybody can talk to and connect about. And I think it's really worthwhile engaging with media that's not sort of micro targeted, you know, laser targeted for you specifically and learning to identify with people who aren't exactly like you. On the other hand, we have to admit that the old monoculture wasn't great. I mean, TV in the 80s and 90s was mostly terrible. And I I know it's kind of cliche to say this now, but it was, of course, biased in favor of straight white men. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I think that's really true. And in a way, I'm, I'm nervous saying all of this 
because I, I think really what I'm talking about, in a way, maybe this is what it's like not to be a straight white man, which is what I am, which is to say there's an awful lot of people talking to me about stuff that isn't all that meaningful to me. Uh, and and, and I, I wonder about that, too. I mean, yeah, the, the, it is worth noting, though, that, that, of course, the entertainment industries are still kind of run by that same yeah. demographic, <laughs> regardless of what the co- kind of content they're putting out. Right. So, yeah. You, know. you, you guys got Harvey Weinstein, but there's plenty more people where he came from. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Rich, I, you know, in a way, I just want to send everybody home and just talk to you um, because... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Good night, all. Yes. Thank you Everybody's, very much. Uh, no, because like I think, I think twice in the last, you know, 12 years, I've made Rich watch a season of The Crown, uh, which he hasn't really been happy about uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons, starting with colonialism and, <laughs> and maybe branching out in other directions as well. And, and then like I've, you started writing to us about H&M, and I really thought that was where I bought the $14 hoodie. But you meant Harry and Meghan. That was like – I just – you know, once again, symbolic of the confusion, the unexpected choices people are making in 2023. You watched that whole freaking six-part documentary or however many parts there were. You bet. But I'm an ad guy, and it was <laughs> a six-part ad. And um, and that's the part that I found fascinating. So I don't think that it actually runs counter to my contempt for the royals. Um, it underscored it, uh, and it underscored it in um, in the way that I think is is true to how our culture is moving right now. Right, that um, that there's a, a, a conceit that's set that's set up um, of who our new heroes are going to be, and they turn out to be basically the same villains. And um, and there's something that's kind of interesting in that ride for me. Like, give an example and, of that. Give an example of what you mean. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I think H and M, who are both the royals in a place where you could get your fourteen dollars hoodie, um, uh, was a commercialized um, uh, manipulation. Um, that's the way it read. But contextually, um, I think that the the important part of this for me is the first five episodes. Um, I uh, I kind of watched them um, with my wife when we were on a tropical island uh, spoiling ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so we completely re- related to the stuff that we were seeing on the screen. It's like new love and, the, you know, you and me against the world stuff, you know, she's beautiful iconography. And for a minute there, and I think that this is what's actually going on with the, with the death of the monoculture, for a minute there, we bought into it, right? Mm-hmm. We suspended disbelief. We became people other than ourselves for that moment. And we watched the last episode um, back at home doing laundry and dealing with the dog who's acting weird since we've been gone. And um, and we came back to ourselves. And the, the fraudulence of the thing became apparent. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know... And I think that that's true of the monoculture that's been that's come out of the pandemic. There was a place where we were just sitting at home and isolated and taking these things in and making up whatever the heck we wanted to make up out of them because we had stepped out of our reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're at this place right now where we're trying to refigure out where we're trying to figure out again uh, what our realities are. And so the culture feels 
confusing and um and sort of all over the place um i've been watching nothing but documentaries lately to be honest with you and um i took a look at the, some of what my favorite documentaries have been netflix documentaries that i've been paying attention to they've been about an octopus a soccer ball a website and nina simone and um and if that isn't just a bunch of confusion uh i don't know what is anymore right by the way your dog while you were gone watched the most recent season of The Crown, he, your dog was trying to say, Elizabeth Debicki's Princess Diana, she's a foot and a half taller from Don, than Dominic West, who's playing Prince Charles. That's what's <laughs> upsetting your dog. Uh, Very your upsetting. Like, how, how, no wonder the marriage didn't work out. They couldn't even see each other. Uh, see? That, that, that typical conventional dog that I've got. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, um, so, you know, Tanisha, as Rich was writing to us and you were responding and we were all talking, I was thinking, Maybe life context is really everything. Maybe it's really our, our relationship to culture, I think part of what Rich is saying right now, isn't so much the platonic existence of, of some cultural artifact independently of us. We're always right where we are, right? We're always living our life. And if our lives are really different, we're going to have radically different reactions to any kind of culture. That's exactly right. And what's wild is that in a lot of ways, we've all had exactly the same experience over the past three years. Mm. So there is there's a bit of a, a disconnect between the the deep connection of of place, of trauma um, and, and the fact that culture is isn't a monolith and I don't think it ever was. I mean, I look back at the nineties and I think of a different world. So, you know, I think of living single. Right. My my. Uh, my history of, of, of TV is, is very contextual, right? Um, and yet we all have come through a, a time where we could point to a lot of things over the past three years that we collectively went through and maybe had different responses inside of, but how magnificent would it be to look at a piece of culture, to listen to a piece of music and be able to unpack the word of 2021, I feel like, unpack <laughs> what happened for us. And so for me, the sort of, um, hands off the wheel culture architecture that I think was once that I imagine was once a part of the work that we all did feels uh, absent. That there that I I wish that there was a little bit more uh, high level organizing of what we're of what we're consuming uh, of what we're making sure. of 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 how we're how we're understanding the world because that's what culture does and that's what the sort of gatekeeping in its in its best offered. So the question is about a, a, imagining a future where it's not about gatekeeping, a future where monoculture doesn't mean white and male. It means human and, and all of the sort of uh, dynamics of what that is. Seems to me, I'm going to stay with you for a second, Tanisha, because I just want to hear rea your reaction to this. It seems to me one of the one of the early people trying to do that kind of organizing, trying to do that kind of gatekeeping, trying to give us some kind of sense of what's going on, is this Barry Obama guy, you know? Because <laughs> uh, like he puts out these lists, and and some of them are as esoteric and recherche as all the other stuff I'm talking about. Like I haven't seen some of the movies he's seen, and and you know he's obviously trying to impress his daughters uh, with the music he listens to, um, but he's really trying, right? Right? He's he, he is somebody it's so weird to have an ex-president who is trying so hard to make some kind of order. I think the kind of order you're talking about. I think you're exactly right. And I balk at this sort of try and be cool to his daughters. I actually think he's <laughs> just cool. And that's just like what the vibe is. But I think that you're right, that I think that curation 
is a really important thing. And we've traded curation for algorithm. And curation is, is deeply human. Curation listens and responds. Curation goes, okay, what does this moment or these people need? And I think, you know, politician, community organizer, whatever definition you put on, on BO, uh, BHO, I, I think he's doing exactly that. I think he is actively trying to uh, not only organize our culture, but show us the ways in which we connect through, you know, really esthete um, properties to really sort of like basic gutter um, opportunities. Although, although Raquel, I also wonder, I, I'd love you for you to respond any way you feel like responding, but I also sort of wonder, I mean, some of the joy of the stuff that you like is that it's, it's really not curatable by ex-presidents or much of anybody else uh, occupying any kind of mainstream position, right? Some of the fun. I, I of mean, the, if, if Barack Obama tried to curate most of the horror movies I watch, <laughs> people would probably be very upset with him. So it would, it would be in his better interest not. Although yeah. I do like the idea of him enjoying the movie Pearl. Yeah. Um, no, Michelle will be going, you come to bed right now. Yeah, <laughs> you are not watching this stuff anymore. Uh, you come to the uh, and, and but I, the one thing I want to ask you, but too before we run out of time, you know, we we're talking a little bit. Uh, everything that we say is tinctured by the pandemic, but this is kind of came up in the late October horror show that we do every year. In a way, if you watched a lot of horror movies for five years, maybe you were a little bit more ready for this whole idea that you know one false move and you die. Kind of, it, 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 you know, it's funny. It, Watching old vampire movies or old zombie movies, like there's always that scene in the vampire movie where someone throws out the garlic and you think like, what kind of an idiot would do that? Why would you throw away the garlic that's protecting you? Now I understand. We're, we've all just collectively decided to throw away the garlic as a society. <laughs> <laughs> we would all get eaten by Dracula. No question. All right. You all have to do this really fast. You can't really contextualize it very much. But I'm going to ask you, or we'll get in trouble with McPants, and that's not good. Uh, but uh, starting with you, Rich, uh, just real quickly, name something you loved. You've named some documentaries. But name one thing you really loved this year. Uh, the one thing I really loved this year, and it was a documentary, My Octopus Teacher. All right. Uh, what about you, Tanisha? Oh, um, octopuses. Octopuses in general? <laughs> yeah, I'm employed by by a one. So yes. Oh, right, there, uh, uh, um, Raquel, at least pick squids. At least pick no one one movie. That you, one, <laughs> That's my love. One I'm, one I'm, movie I'm you loved. Break, or, yeah, I'm going to break the pattern and and uh, pick Pearl. I loved it, and it was a movie that actually did deal with a pandemic. Granted, it was Spanish flu, but still. So there you go. All right. Thanks to this wonderful trio. We're going to take a quick break. I can't believe that the show hasn't already jumped the rails, but it hasn't. And we're going to keep going now. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. It's the end of the year uh, news episode uh, and now joining us. So we have nine panelists uh, here uh, joining us for this segment are Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and freelance writer, Jim Chaplin, Emmy-winning musician, guitar hero, patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast, S-H-A-W-N, if you're searching it. Um, And so I, once again, I think people are just going to do whatever they want to do here. But uh, the argue of the putative theme here uh, in this particular segment is the idea, particularly because I think one of the defining characteristics of 2022 in culture was in in particular two workaholics, uh, Taika Waititi uh, and, and, and Taylor Sheridan. Uh, these are both um, creators who created insane amounts of content. They were each of them making TV shows and, I mean, in, in Waititi's case, also movies getting involved. In, and so there's a Waititi-verse and there's a Sheridan-verse and Waititi is also involved in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, because he's making uh, Thor movies and stuff like that. Uh, and there are other verses too. And and I, I'm, Sean, I'm just sort of thinking, I was sort of thinking about that and thinking in a way we have this really spread out, disparate culture with a lot of little tiny job shops making semi-obscure uh, movies that wind up on 10 best lists, even though you've never heard of them. But the other thing we have is this weird concentration of effort. Uh, you know, these two guys plus Marvel plus DC plus Star Wars, you know, Marvel in a way even made a joke about itself and She-Hulk at the end. Maybe we better not spoil it, but sort of saying maybe this wasn't even all generated by a human being. I, I don't know. Is there something is there a there there to what I'm talking about? Uh, Probably not, but we'll figure <laughs> it out. Um, <laughs> I, well, just to go back to the Taika and. um. Taylor Sheridan. There's no way those guys are doing that much stuff. Like, like Taika <laughs> has his name on a lot of stuff. Where it's like it's he's it's like when you went you, once you get hot enough in the industry, you get to be able to be like, hey, this is like Taika Waititi's project, but it's just a way to get the project produced for the guy who's really doing it because he doesn't have enough cachet. Like Reservation Dogs. Like I'm sure Taika does almost nothing on that show, but you know I might I'm sure he's like, hey, you got this is a good joke keep it in but i don't think he's like in the writer's room but it's easier to say this is like a tv show than it is to say it's sterling uh okay i forgot the guy's name uh because we don't know who that is <laughs> but as far as um the verses of it all um i mean we're screwed we gotta like it's just too much it's, i don't care like i was i'm, I'm a big marvel comics guy and i hate the mcu now like it's and speaking back Back to Ty- Taika, Thor: Love and Thunder was awful. Like, yeah, it was, it was just, pretty bad. It was it was really bad, and it, it it's like Ragnarok had like a tongue in cheek quality to it. Like, hey, we're kind of making fun of this whole Thor thing, it, which kind of worked because Thor one and two were so dour. But then, um, Love and Thunder was like 
double that, but also like not even well made particularly. And it's also like it wasted it actually a pretty good Christian Bale performance. Um, I don't know if this has anything to do with what you're saying, but I, I have some gripes about Taika Waititi's output over the last over the last uh, years. I didn't like Jojo Rabbit either. Right. As I said, I'm counting on people to talk about whatever they want to talk about. So don't feel like you have to be responsive. Um, although I would just say I'm going to stay with you for a second and say in the case of Waititi, there is this even on Reservation Dogs. Like when I first started watching Reservation Dogs, knowing nothing about it, uh, I I thought I sort of recognized this sense of humor. You know, like the first episode, these young people on a reservation, they hijack, they steal a truck. And, and the two of them in the front seat have a big conversation about whether they should put their seatbelts on. Um, you know, they're stealing a truck and, and like, you know, you still put your seatbelt on. And that's there's that kind of gentleness of humor, that whimsy that he brings to otherwise serious situations th- that I think is a discernible motif anyway that, that you get from him and maybe not from other people. No, absolutely. I think um, it, it's, it's easy to identify like a Taika project in that way. Like that's what he connects with, like that sort of like that irreverence and that sort of like silliness. Um, and I, I think I, I do think like, for like the pilot and like part of season one, he probably had more hands. But like, it's just like there's no way, like there's no way someone <laughs> could be this involved, like like seriously involved on a day to day basis with this many projects. Like every two days, Tyga gets like in like Tyga's remaking um, Death on the Nile. Tyga's remaking <laughs> like you know Citizen Kane. It's like and then like you know inevitably the the project gets canceled in another six months but it's like he must have been working on it somewhat for it to get announced so like i don't know it's, it's not possible and then taylor sheridan at least i could believe that so much because it's like it's all sort of work within the same um like same family in the same sort of like uh setting but even then it's like come on dude like nobody has as many stories in them like right. even the guy who makes bluey the the kids show he writes like a, it, those are like 12 minute episodes like he writes <laughs> I don't know if you guys know about Bluey. You guys we know to... about Bluey. We, we've talked about doing Bluey. Yeah, but okay. look, there's there's Adderall, there's Red Bull. You can get a lot of stuff done these days. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, Rebecca, you and Jim, and I think Tanisha were a part. I forced everybody to absorb the Sheridan verse or to watch a lot of the Sheridan verse. And I'm not proud of that. Except that, um, and I should say that Rebecca and I, although we're 120 years apart in age, uh, we actually like a lot of the same stuff. Like I've noticed like over the years, not just Emily St. John Mandel novels, but like a lot of stuff. And and I found that watching all that Taylor Sheridan stuff has really kind of affected me. I, I feel more acclimated to Westerns, but more aware of the fact that the Native American story can't just be serviced in, you know, in a perfunctory way. There's like, I don't know. I feel like immersing myself in all that stuff. I still haven't seen 1923. I understand Harrison Ford is pretty checked out and Helen Mirren isn't, but I don't know. I, I, what did you, how, do, how are you absorbing this whole idea of these little sort of, you know, nation states uh, of auteurs? <laughs> Well, I think it's kind of maybe a reaction to the disintegration of monoculture. We have kind of leaned into subcultures and embracing these verses, these outputs from a certain creator. And it does give us something to talk about and revisit. I mean, for me, the best example of this year was House of the Dragon and kind of getting my Game of Thrones crew back together. And we're like, are we going to do this again? Like, it's it might not be good. It might not be 
great. It might be just okay, but like it's it's revisiting something and coming back to that same universe. And I think for the Taylor Sheridan universe, that has really created a subculture and there's rabid fans and having watched 36 hours of the Taylor Sheridan universe <laughs> that I will never get back. I do feel like I need to watch 1923 now and I don't really even want to, but I feel like I have to <laughs> to kind of like keep being immersed in this subgenre that you forced me into. Right. So that's what's, known, that's what's known as a sunk cost. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. There's no way to cut your losses at this point you just have to keep going tax write-off yeah so i don't know jim uh i don't even know which question to ask you just react to what I, I, I you know i don't know what to say here there's, there's been so many um, um uh, observations that i agree with i want to say i consumed the the sheridan verse uh, basically on a diet of, of cough drops and propofol and i woke up with uh just an enormous mustache one day and i felt like i knew everything there was to know about horses and I'm allergic to horses. Uh, and, and so I, I have a lot of useless knowledge, but yeah. I would say in the case of both of these young fellows, that their the quality of their output is diminishing uh, in direct proportion to the amount of output that they have. You know, um, the first two Taylor Sheridan movies were really good. And I know a lot of people like Yellowstone, but, I wouldn't be one of those people. Um, and the same thing with, with Thor Ragnarok, which was really a great movie. And then the next Thor was made me Thor, if I may. I had to. Um, it's the cough drop. Uh, so so I, I think, you know, there's somebody in Hollywood, that maybe it's a plastic surgeon that's out of business, needs to say no. Like somebody has to say no at some point to these guys like work on one thing and do that one thing really good right um you, you don't need a verse right although we should say that after that particular episode rich uh excuse me jim went to texas found some eastern european immigrants and forced them to go to portland um, I did that. well that's why there's a border crisis right now <laughs> border crisis. uh and so yeah i don't know in a way sean i feel i was sort of thinking about what did i really enjoy this year and when was i kind of happy uh, and it wasn't that I was necessarily really unhappy watching She-Hulk Attorney at Law. I enjoyed that quite a bit, actually. <laughs> you know, and I wasn't necessarily unhappy watching 1883. Um, but I was also really happy. There was a movie called uh, The Funny Pages uh, by a guy named Owen Klein, which is about like a, like really weird comic book people, like really weird comic people. And there was Emily the Criminal, which is an Aubrey Plaza. You know, I think the the role of little indie movies might even become more important in a situation and where maybe the plaza verse well the players there's the there's, oh, there's totally going to be a plaza verse there I'll dive into that yeah. verse. <laughs> I, I, me too I, I i think she's amazing so yeah that's a verse i, I would inhabit too but sean you know what i mean i sort of feel like in some ways even though we're seeing the monoculture is fragmented there, it's also because of these little city states you know i don't know independent stuff that doesn't have some kind of pervasive brand on it gets more interesting no, I agree with that. Um, I, I do miss the monoculture to an extent, but but what I don't like about the monoculture or like how it's be like the the verses of it all is how you feel the need to watch something like just because to, like there's so many movies I decided I'm not watching this because I don't care or album like I just I don't care I'm not watching this just to be a part of the conversation unless I think it's like genuinely interested on its own right and i think most of those indie things are like that where it's like hey i've heard 
like critics talking about this coming out of the the festivals or whatever, and it sounds really good. So I want to watch that so I can be aware of what this thing is, but not just so I can talk about something at the proverbial water cooler that doesn't exist anymore with people I don't care about on Twitter. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I totally know what you mean. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe it's time to talk a little bit about, well, I, I just want to stay with the rest of the panel. You know, so, Rebecca, talk a little, little bit about the stuff that did energize you. I forced you to watch 36 hours of Taylor Sheridan. That didn't really work. Um, so what did? Gosh, I mean, there was a lot of great television this year. I think it was just an embarrassment of riches. Um and some great film, too. I mean, I think for me, one of the big standouts was Everything Everywhere All at Once, which very much deals with the multiverse, which is part of this verse concept. And the multiverse had a moment this year with Doctor Strange, which is another, you know, MCU verse. And that was a slog. I saw that it had a layover on a plane and I was like, all right, well, there's something to watch. And it was god awful. And then a week later, I think I saw Everything Everywhere All at Once that really just sort of brought it all back home. It made it about the individual again, and it made me feel less like the world is this vast, ever-expanding thing that, you know, you're just this little nothing floating through the ether. Like, it, it brought it back to, like, well, that doesn't matter. It's about your interpersonal relationships and being with the ones you love and having conversations about culture, for better or for worse. So I think that, like, that really kind of, for me, felt like a microcosm of some of this other culture that I consumed this year. Um so yeah, I that mean, was really, that was beautifully expressed. Although I do I, worry that there's a multiverse verse now. Um, oh God, I'm so exhausted. So we'll have to go see lots of multiverse verse stuff. Yeah, and Jim, you know, I know you're uh, something of a fan of slow horses. Uh, this is the Gary Oldman uh, thing that uh, it's it's uh, based on a series of uh, novels. It's about sort of spies who are British spies who are put out to pasture because they've screwed something up, except that they have this kind of core competency that nobody's really noticing. And I, I'm finding that I'm really riveted to that too. Uh, and, and I'm not 100% sure I understand why. But to me, it is one of the most compelling things on I th television. I right think now. I know why. why? Uh, and Well, I think there's a tie-in with- Because I never another... washed my clothes either? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's the cough drop. Um, so what I would say is for 20 minutes of the last- 20 years, you and I, straight white men, were not centered in the conversation. And so they realized they had to whip up some TV for you <laughs> and I. <clears throat> and, or we were going to have like an insurrection or something like that, because we do crazy things when we're not the center of attention. Uh, so they whipped up the old man, which was great. And they whipped up slow horses for us. And I realized like, oh, my God, I am that person as much as we want to think that we're not. We are. So I love both those shows. They were both about old guys doing old guy stuff in a world that they shouldn't be competent in. But they are. But they're not jumping off of trains onto a horse or anything that. Well, Colin, you could probably do that. But I would have trouble hitting the horse. Yeah, no, I so, can't do that either. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, I think try periodically. Really, I think those two shows have this weird sort of through line to it, maybe a Papulian through line, in that they were sort of demographic and then they broadened out, and other people realized, wow, they're really good shows. And um, and that's what I'll say about that. I, I really liked them both. I, I particularly, I'm, I'm in Slow Horses now. Right. So, I, I don't know how much to talk about it because it'll, uh, I don't want to spoil the the ending where he does jump from a train onto a horse. Well, I, the other thing I want to say is, that's not true, by the way. Um, um, I want to say that uh, I'm watching Slow Horses and the Old Man for young people. It's called The Recruit, 
It's on Netflix. It's terrific. I am just knocked out by this thing. And it has one of the same themes, which is bureaucracies really don't work very well, which everybody already knew. Uh, but this is very much a, he's about a young guy who becomes a CIA lawyer. And it just turns out that most of his time is spent wrestling with bureaucracies that are kind of at cross purposes. It's really funny, too. It, it, the, a lot of the cast was recruited from the world of comedy as opposed to the world uh, of serious drama. And, and overall, I'm laughing at this thing about as hard as I laughed at anything in a while. So uh, the recruit is going to be my big uh, endorsement uh, out of tonight. But um, but Sean, we have time for you to say, I don't know if we've heard like the, the thing that you loved the most. If you were going to say what you loved the most from 2022, what would that be? Well, initially, I was going to say uh, Top Gun Maverick because you <laughs> slandered it so horrifyingly in the first segment. Top Gun was great. And I don't even like Top Gun. Maverick was amazing. Great theory, theater experience. But what I will say, and this was a late entry into my favorite things of the year, was there's a video on Twitter going around of a fight happening in a Waffle House and a chair is thrown at one of the <laughs> wa- a Waffle House. It's amazing. Clothes, and she touches the chair midair yeah. and discards it. It's like, it's the most Unbelievable. amazing like, anime thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It's she, she, like, Time Magazine needs to retract the person of the year. Uh, <laughs> First, uh, like, no, it's not Zelensky, it's not the people of Ukraine. It is this Waffle House cook who catches a steel chair in midair. All right, you, you're giving me and Jim something to do for the rest of the night. Uh, yes, we have to, we need to watch. We have to go it's find this. So insanely, it's the most impressive thing I've ever seen in my entire life, uh, especially in this year. All right, uh, yes. <laughs> we know. <laughs> we have to go. I think she was in Chef, actually. That woman, uh, the Waffle House woman. Uh, she, she was, was one a rigger. She's one she of the Sioux cooks. Yeah. Rigger. All right. So we've got to take a little break here. We're going to come back with our third and final panel. I'm not going to tell you what the theme is because they probably won't follow it anyway. Don't know why I act the way I do Like I ain't got a single thing to lose Sometimes I'm my own worst enemy I guess that's just the cowboy in me Come on, man. And with the local DBC news, Ed Kujay with a triumphant comeback. More But tonight, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my pants. Put suckers in fear. Making the tears rain down like a monster. All right, so that just, LL Cool J just gave away the theme for this segment. But um, but he does that. That's that's so LL Cool J uh, to give away the theme. All right, first of all, I have to say some very quick thank yous. It's actually just kind of one thank you. Let me just remind you, I don't know when you're listening to this, but for us, we're doing this at 9 o'clock on the Wednesday night between Christmas and New Year's. There aren't a lot of people around here. In fact... There are two cars in the parking lot right now. One of them is mine, and the other one belongs to Jonathan McPants, the producer of The Nose, who's also doing Cat Pastor's job. He's the technical producer of The Nose also tonight. Joining us for the final segment, Sam Haddleman, who works in pub- music public relations and hosts The Sam Haddleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. And Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Once again, we're going to have a theme which I do not expect the panel to really pay very much attention to. But who knows? They might, or they'll just go off in their own directions. Um, but, uh, but Carolyn, you actually came up with this idea, and it's a really good idea. So let me just quickly lay it out, and then you can sort of flesh it out a little bit. You, what you said, said to us is that we've seen these – I mean, so – 
let's go back in time, 2019 to 2020. We we had the Keanu sons, Keanu Reeves. You know, we dusted off Keanu Reeves and kind of put him back uh, in, in action. This year, it was Gene Smart and Jennifer Coolidge, the Smartest sons, the Coolidge sons, which is very hard to say. That's what you proposed to us that we should talk about these resurrections, which we seem to be enjoying quite a lot. But I'm sure you have more to say about that. Yeah, it feels like everyone is getting a renaissance now. Uh, I mean, I specifically celebrate it with Jennifer Coolidge, who I'm a huge fan of. And I feel that this year we got like two great gifts from her. Uh, one turd in the punch bowl with that old Navy commercial. But, um, <laughs> you know, we have The Watcher on, on Netflix and White Lotus. Um, I mean, I I think that it's it is kind of awesome to get to see these people that you know, once or, or even these things that are getting renaissances. I know we talked about that in emails, but it's it's there's a sense of nostalgia with it and uh, getting to like reconnect. But it's like they come back better than ever. Uh, yeah. We really are in the high art time of Jennifer Coolidge, and it is something to admire. But we also have like Brendan Fraser, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who I definitely had a crush on in like the early 2000s back in, you know, and and 90s, like, you know, Encino Man and and Bedazzled and all these like George of the Jungle, these stupid, stupid movies. And now he's getting this he he's he might win an Oscar. What's, the one, what's the one where he's like locked in a fallout shelter? Uh, in, I, Encino Man. No, that's not it. Is it? It's Alicia Silverstone, and he's oh, he's blast parent. from the past. Blast I'm from so the past. So embarrassed, I can pull that out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed that I got that reference. But yes, right, um, right, exactly. I love like, that movie. It is a really good movie, actually, and I feel now I have to go back and rewatch that. Uh, but I, I we're getting, you know, he might win an Oscar, and I think that for somebody who that's exactly what we you know, we're referencing things like Encino Man and now for him to come back with stuff like that. I think it's just an exciting time for these comebacks and everyone loves a good comeback story. And uh, okay, but I, I just I mean, want to say I want to get I want you to talk about one more thing before I go to the rest of the panel, sure. too, which was you already referenced it. But if the price of bringing Jennifer Coolidge back and her brand is she's kind of a hot mess at all times at any given moment in most particularly in White Lotus, she looks like she's like seconds away from a 48-hour involuntary commitment, right? She's going to be in a locked ward for observation. Uh, you know, she's just escaping that all the time. And then she does this old Navy commercial where she's like the life of the party and she's at the piano and she's smiling. She doesn't look like she's either messed up on prescription drugs or anything. I just It was so wrong. Yeah, I, I when I saw that, I could not figure out how this was the best they came up with for her. <laughs> I mean, there are so many wonderful kind of Jennifer Coolidge bag of tricks you can reach into with her and things that you can reference and uh, just ridiculous. I I mean, I would have loved her to just, you know, walk into the commercial in a pair of Old Navy pajamas and just fall down drunk. (laughs) Like That would have been that would have sold me on those pajamas. Yeah, You would have bought those pajamas right away, I think. All right. So we have to sort of move on a little bit, make sure everybody gets involved here. I'm saving Sam because. He's going to put us through the Jeezy Assange, and I, I just I need we need to delay this as long as possible. But um, but Bill Usman, as a media studies professor, I just like you've just listened to about forty minutes of us trying to figure out culture. I mean, I just I'm interested in what you're thinking about, even as we're talking about this stuff. Of course, you might have to unmute. Um, 
All right, let's, let's, we'll go back and we'll see if we can find Here I am. Oh, there you are. Okay. I'm here. There you are. I'm okay. here. Yeah. You know, I'm not used to this 9 o'clock slot I know, me here. neither. I'm, I'm, I'm at my worst right now. My feet are usually up at this point. <laughs> um, I just want to actually sit back here and listen to Carolyn riff off every single Brendan Fraser movie ever. <laughs> because she seems to have the capability to do that. Are you? Will, will you come guest lecture in one of my classes? She's, just... le- she's leaving out The Affair, the TV series where he's this really mean prison guard who tortures Dominic West, who turns out to be I Prince I saw Charles. that, yeah. and he's scary in that. Yeah, he's really... I, um... I admitted, Bill, I am a, I'm a Brendan Fraser fan from back in the day. They say even a, I had a huge crush on him. So, yeah, I will come and lecture about... You're going to come to my class and do a whole <laughs> night, night on... Um, as a media studies professor, I want to talk about an old form of media that is making a comeback. Bookstores are back, baby. Mm. And as a pessimist, I'm really surprised by this. But all of a sudden, you know, Barnes and Noble, which was closing stores and by 2018 seemed like they might go out of business. All of a sudden now they're opening places all over the place. They're kind of punching the evil monster Amazon in the face a little bit. And even better, independent bookstores are having a major comeback um, all over the country. Uh, And right here in Connecticut, where new stores have opened in Greenwich, New Haven, West Hartford, Hartford, Mystic, Danbury, they're just popping up. You cannot kill bookstores and that makes me really really happy well we they were killed for a while but yes i agree in the west harvard bookstore which is called river bend or something like that it's uh, an offshoot of a glastonbury bookstore it's really great i went in there and the best thing about bookstores is that they they have the opposite of an algorithm they have like the staff the staff picks human you know and so so like i i looked at this shelf and i thought oh Veronica and I, we like a lot of the same kind of books. I'm going to buy two more of Veronica's books. Um, right. and, and then I took them up to the cash register and she's looking at the books and she's, and she goes, oh, I love these books. I go, are you Veronica? <laughs> she, said, <laughs> she said, yes. I said, well, we're just like practically brother and sister here. And that, and it's an experience, yeah. which, you know, you're in a place and you're walking around and, you know, you can feel the vibe of being there, which you just don't get online. Right. No, absolutely. The bookstore assance is one of the best assances of the year. All right, Sam, it's time to do the Jeezy assance, unless you want to do the Lupe Fiasco assance or one of the other, many other assances uh, of the year. But I think the Jeezy, you're going to have to explain, first of all, to our aging listeners, who the hell Jeezy is and why he would be having an assance. Uh, uh, Jeezy's like the Edgar Allan Poe of rapping about dope. <laughs> and he, and he delivered probably the most seminal Southern rap album of all time with Thug Motivation 101. It like single-handedly got me through college. I'm also really shocked that you unpromptedly brought this up. Yes. It's not like, it's not like this is something I've been emailing you about or texting you incessantly. Like, listen to Jeezy, Colin, like you're listening to Jeezy in your free time. This is one um, of the few things you haven't emailed me or texted me about. Yeah, yeah. And this year, for absolutely no apparent reason, which was kind of the theme of all these answers, Jeezy dropped one of the most spectacular albums of the year. Anybody with ears and a heart should listen to it. Um, it's called Snowfall. It's with DJ Drama, who you might remember from being the loud person on mixtapes. But like everybody loves a comeback story, especially in music. Uh, Nas had a run. Lil Wayne a couple years well, ago. Well, did, did like had, had was it like like D'Angelo went away for like well like fourteen years, fourteen yeah. years, and like I think he like he might have been in jail for some of those or whatever. But um, so do we know where Jeezy was while he wasn't uh, dropping mediocre music? That's the crazy part about this. It's not yeah. like he like went away and came back. He just for some reason got a battery in his back and 
truly, I think it is one of the best comebacks music has seen in years, and nobody noticed it. Thank you for bringing it up, Colin. Uh, but other like <laughs> renaissances, like I don't know, we all love to see people win. Like speaking of White Lotus, Aubrey Plaza. I don't think people appreciated her the past couple of years like they should have, and she's really stood out in White Lotus. Adam Scott in Severance, uh, Jeremy Allen White in The Bear, the dude from Indiana Jones and uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, even Denzel and Macbeth, which came out on Christmas last year. Everybody loves a comeback story. Everybody loves reconnecting with people who we genuinely love. And especially bringing up Brendan Fraser, thinking about the reason why he went away specifically makes this year so much sweeter for him. And if you don't know why mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser didn't get booked, do some Googling. Um, and to top it all off, obviously, if we're going to talk about renaissances, we have to talk about Beyonce. I mean, it feels so right that she is the number one ranked album across all lists. Like it just that hasn't been the case in five years. And I understand like we're all warped and maybe that, that is important to some people. But for me, that feels so like homely and toasty. And I, I don't feel like, that, like Beyonce was like like King Lear walking out in the wilderness in the storm all by herself. I, I don't feel like Beyonce was far enough away to have to make a comeback. But I could be but wrong she, about that. It's, I wouldn't even call it a comeback, just a renaissance. A renaissance. OK, so it's time for each of you to mention very succinctly, but not too succinctly, one thing that you really loved this year. Carolyn, why don't you get us started? Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco. Stunning. <laughs> <laughs> Just that audio clip is one of my favorites. You, from need this to explain, year. you need to explain for the untutored what you're talking about. I know what you're oh, talking about. Oh, okay. So um, Olivia Cook and I am embarrassed to say I don't even know the other actress. They're from The Crown. They are doing an interview with each other. They ask, she asks uh, what her favorite cocktail is, and she just coos Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco. Uh, and it, it, it's just become this. TikTok and uh, Instagram noise that everyone has repurposed for all sorts of things. And uh, it also has made the Negroni is another comeback. It had <laughs> it had its moment with uh, Stanley Tucci in 2020. And now we have a new kind of Negroni, a comeback of that. So the Negroni right sense. We should say that both of those actresses are wearing Old Navy pajamas in that scene. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's all ties together, really. All right. So, uh, Bill Usman, what did you mention something you love this year? Well, I love my wife every year, and I have to say that I'm contractually something you're prepared to have other people enjoy uh, would be the in addition to Suzanne Plachette, but we won't mention that. Um, Mine is the come another music comeback. Gil Scott Heron's old running partner Brian Jackson released his first solo album in over 20 years. It's called "This Is Brian Jackson," and it's just really fantastic soul jazz. Oh, I am actually, I didn't know that. And I'm going to check that out. You're welcome. That's very cool. Yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, And Sam, uh, why don't you mention something that you love this year? Um, I want to do something interesting and pick something out of the box, but I'm just going to genuinely recommend something that has brought me a lot of joy this year. There's this rapper, Boldy James. He's kind of like an older, more rough and tough guy, but he's dropped five albums with five different producers in the past 12 months. He's like, imagine it. He's like the jazz man of 2022 how like art blakely would play with like different bands this guy's playing with different producers and creating these just different soundscapes for each project 
I would recommend it to anybody with ears. I was waiting for Fleischman is in trouble, but uh, maybe, oh, maybe that's a different Sam time. and I can both do that. For yeah, you. yeah, yeah. But that's not a comeback. Oh, no, it's not a comeback. No, that was just something you left. All right, doesn't matter. Show's over anyway. But I do want to say, like, the news is a thrill for me too because like people get to know each other uh, and people do side projects together and stuff. And all of you have kind of become a little bit of a family uh, over the years, and and you kind of know each other's moves on the air and stuff like that. And it was sort of my hope all those years ago when I came up with this idea. So. Thanks to Jonathan McPants for making these episodes happen every week, and thanks to all of you who listen, but especially thanks to all of our wonderful panelists. Yeah, 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 yeah.